We're going to um, um, be, be working through tonight Romans chapter 8, verses 9, 10, and 11. But I want to uh, connect it to what we uh, talked about last Wednesday night, which is starting in verse 5. So I'm going to ask you to stand on Wednesday night. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 5 and read through 11. Romans, Romans 8, 5 says this, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. Somebody say not. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his, meaning Christ's. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But... If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. May God bless his word this evening. Um, man, talking about the flesh. Talking about the, the, the cravings of the carnal nature. That's what we mentioned last week. I've used a lot of funny illustrations over the past few weeks. I've talked about, you know, my, my addiction to Nutella. That, that creamy hazelnut spread. You know, I was formerly addicted to Red Bull. Praise God, I haven't had one in about six months. You know, life according to the Spirit has its testimonies. And uh, 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 we all, sanctification is that process of... of Learning how to say no to the flesh. I think that's what sanctification is. Because if we can deny the flesh, then that means we can say yes to the Spirit. But we cannot say yes to the Spirit until we've said no to the flesh. He says in verse 9 that we are not in the flesh. The NIV says you're not in the realm of the flesh. You're in a different realm. Have you ever woke up somewhere? Maybe you were at a hotel. Maybe you were on a trip. And for a, four, a few moments, you didn't know where you were. <laughs> you know, you go on vacation, you wake up, you're like, where am I? You know, you're looking for your alarm clock, and you're looking for your window that's in that certain position. You can't find them things. You wake up in a strange place. You wake up away from the creature comforts of your home, and you're not accustomed to this new surroundings. So it kind of throws you off, right? One time when I was in high school, uh, we had this little, little bitty dog. And he had run into my room late at night. I was in bed under my bed. So my mother came in the room um, to get the dog from under my bed to put him uh, in their room. And when she was under the bed, she was talking to the dog named Scooty. And she was saying, Scooty, come here. Scooty, come here. Well, I woke up. But I didn't know where I was. All I saw was that outline of a silhouette against the bright lights of a hallway. And I thought... An alien was attacking me. And, and, and some, some demon was attacking me. So I started yelling at her. And, and I got up and I start yelling. Because I'm not aware of my surroundings. So it comes out kind of slowly. It comes out kind of... Uh, uh, and I start, I start waking up. And literally chasing her into the hallway. Yelling at her. Uh, 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 
ah, and I start yelling so loud that my dad, who sleeps through everything, gets up out of his bed, comes into the hallway where I'm yelling at my mother, and he doesn't know what's going on, so he starts choking me. (laughs) And she's hitting him. She says, Mike, he's sleepwalking. Mike. And so he goes from choking me, and then he realizes what's happened, and he kisses me on the head. I don't know why he did that. But like, oh my gosh, I'm choking my son, I love you. <laughs> and and once, he, once he did that, I, I stopped yelling. And then I walked back to my bed. And I woke up the next morning, I got in the shower, and I was like, man, that was a crazy dream. And I said, mom, listen to this crazy dream. I thought aliens were attacking me. And I chased one out in the hallway. She says, that wasn't a dream. That was me. But I was not aware of my surroundings. My question for you today is when you woke up this morning, were you in a familiar realm or an unfamiliar realm? Because the realm of the flesh is what's familiar to us. It's what's comfortable to us. But the realm of the spirit is awkward. The realm of the spirit is uncomfortable. It is, it is unaccustomed to, to what we like. Our goal should be to live in that awkward place where it's not just our alarm clock and our, our, our window and, and, and our curtains, but, but we're living in a different realm is what Paul says. Not the one you were accustomed to, but in the new one, which is the spirit. Our goal should make, uh, be making that which is awkward become normal. The spirit which feels awkward to the flesh should, should eventually become normal. And what is interesting is that Paul says that because you're in Christ, you're no longer in that old realm. You see, through, through chapters 6, 7, 8, Paul never tells you to, to leave the flesh. He already says you're already separated in Christ and no longer in that realm. He's not trying to tell you how to get out of that realm. He's saying you're already in the new place. And if you realize you're in the new place, then you'll be uh, liberated to that triumphant life. You'll be liberated. What does it mean to be in the realm of the flesh as we once were? It means that we're under the dominion of the control of, of the flesh. It means that the ruling power is... The self. You see, before you come to Jesus, the self or the flesh controls you. That is what it means to be in the realm, the dominion of the flesh. We talked about that last week in the government of the flesh. Before you come to Jesus Christ, you're governed by the cravings of the flesh. And you have no power over it. Actually, it has power over you. From the earliest age that you're born, the flesh literally begins to scream and crave for that which it's hungry for. As soon as a a newborn comes into this world, that flesh begins to scream for nourishment, much like uh, uh, the young ones we hear sometimes. And, and, And I love that because babies are hungry. Amen? And this is in my notes, so I'm not using any illustration. It's just God's providence here. Um, In a strange way, babies are trained to obey the flesh. When the flesh is hungry, they cry. I'm literally reading word for word my sermon. And don't you worry about it, precious moms. 
Um, because if you don't hear crying, the church is dying. Ain't that true? So we rejoice over that. When, when the flesh is angry, they scream. And when the little ones are unsatisfied with the decision you made, they bite you like Roman does. But, but here's the funny thing. We, we understand that that's okay for a baby. We understand that that's okay for a child. But the problem is our society has now adapted that for the rest of life. That what you crave and what you want is what you should get. Whatever makes you comfortable is what you should get. And that's ultimately humanism. Last summer, I preached about humanism. And that's the largest religion in the world today. Humanism said, do whatever makes you happy. Carpe diem, seize the day. YOLO, you only live once. Do whatever. You know, that's the philosophy of our day. If, if abortion makes a mother happy, that should be her choice. If, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the polygamists say that, um, the, the Mormons say polygamy makes me happy, which I have no idea how that's even possible. <laughs> you see, sin is always a lie. Sin is a lie that says something's going to make you happy, but the problem is it never does. You see, Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve believed the lie, the lie that the forbidden fruit would bring them happiness and wholeness. That's the lie that the serpent told them, that, that some other material thing would bring them wholeness. But all it brought was spiritual death, guilt, and condemnation. But back to humanism. Humanism says that the point of life is you. <laughs> the point of life is to make you happy. This is new age pantheism. This is paganism. This is all the isms you want to uh, proclaim that, that whatever gets your boat, that's what you do to make you happy, to make you satisfied. But some in the church have adopted this message of humanism and merged it with what they think Christianity is, which produces the prosperity gospel. And here's what the prosperity gospel says, that the point of Christianity is so God can make you happy. God wants you happy. God wants you wealthy. God wants you successful. Well, can I tell you what? Let's think about some earthly things. Let's take, for example, the military. No one joins the military to be happy. No, they join because of a, a duty to their country and, and the worthiness of the battle, even if it means giving their life. Think about uh, people who become a teacher. Any teachers here today? Any teachers? Okay. You know, I always think about teachers. No one becomes a teacher to be wealthy. They join because investing in the lives of young people give value to their existence. No one gets married to be successful. Because marriage means you forfeit your own rights as an individual and now exist for the betterment of someone else. It's the opposite of success. <laughs> you notice a marriage and a funeral, somebody's coming down to the altar. This is what I tell a lot of couples, that, that an altar is a place not for something to live, but for something to die. You're dying to yourself, putting someone else ahead of you. 
You see, if those earthly institutions are entered in for reasons not qualified in the prosperity gospel, then why would we think that a heavenly existence would be attached to those earthly things? If even carnal people aren't following the pursuits of life because of health, wealth, and happiness, then why would we think that the, the spiritual existence would be followed for those earthly things? Christianity is the opposite of humanism. It's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. We don't do what makes us happy. We do what Jesus has called us to. We don't do what makes us successful because there is no success in in suffering and self-death. We don't give to the church because God's going to make us wealthy, but because the kingdom is advancing through the offerings of its people, because people in Moldova are being rescued, because people in Haiti are being discipled, because young people are, are learning and growing in the things of God. Not so God will make us wealthy. Humanism says that I need something else for, for God to bless me, but Christianity says God's already blessed me. I'm already blessed. You see, this is why Jesus can't be a hobby. Jesus can't be a part-time thing. He can't be important on Sunday, but secondary on Monday. He's got to be everything or he's nothing. Because on the days he's not everything, you're going to look for something else to be the everything. On the days he's not God, something else is. You've got to become obsessed with Jesus. Where everything is about him and for him and by him, there's no other option (laughs) the way that leads to eternal life is narrow. There's no faltering. Jesus said the man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. What happened to to Lot's wife? She was being rescued and given freedom, but she looked back at the material things. Instantly, she was not worthy of following God. You see, Sin will never become ugly to us until Jesus is the most beautiful to us. We will never see uh, see sin as despairing until Jesus becomes ultimately supreme, where he is the highest good and he he is the pinnacle of our existence that we exist for him. That's the opposite of humanism. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, if Christ is in you, then even your body is subject to death. Even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life. So here's what it looks like. (laughs) Because if the beautiful Lord of the universe lives in me, then my body is counted as unworthy. My, my, My material things are no longer the driving force because now the driving force is the spirit, not the material. I no longer live for the pleasure of the self because Christ lives in me, but for the pleasure that is in God alone. Did you know that some of the early Christians believed that the essence of Christianity was getting rid of all emotion? They thought that becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ was getting rid of all emotion. That a true follower of Jesus Christ would get rid of of anger, hurt, offense, bitterness, pride, lust, greed, covetousness, all these emotions. And they felt like a mature follower of Jesus Christ didn't feel anything but simply obeyed. Now I can see where they're going a little bit, but let me tell you, the spirit life is not devoid of emotion. (laughs) Sometimes the church looks like it is. But the spiritual life in Jesus is not devoid 
of, it's not devoid of pleasure. Matter of fact, I believe that, that when we are, are fully plugged into God, there is the highest pleasure. And it's a pleasure that comes from the beauty that he is. The, the, the spirit life is full of emotion. In February, I began reading through the book of Genesis. That's a long book. 50 chapters. So last night, it's like 11 o'clock, and I'm sitting in my chair. Children are in bed. I'm reading the story of Joseph. And I get to the part where his brothers have now come back to him. And now Joseph is the head of, of selling all the grain in Egypt. And his, his brothers hated Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. They actually wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. And years later, now Joseph, through the favor of God, has has been brought up under Potiphar and under Pharaoh and put in charge of all the grain. And now his brothers come back to buy grain. They don't know Joseph is there. And Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. And they all begin to weep. And Joseph embraces the brothers who wanted him dead. And you know what I did? I just began to weep. Over a over a 3,000 year old book that emotion that just pours out to see God in action and to realize the picture of Jesus Christ that we were adamantly opposed to the things of God but through the Lord's favor he's brought us to the place where now we've come before the beautiful king of kings that he is and fall at his feet because he alone can satisfy our needs. Because just like his brothers, the famine wept, uh, swept throughout the land. They had no hope for living except for the Pharaoh. And they come to the Pharaoh and there's their brother in control of the grain. And to see God's sovereignty and just to see the power of God. And that Joseph, even though they wanted him dead, now he is making them alive. You see, my friend, if we were able to realize the famine that's in this world, just like the famine of Egypt, that man has no ability to feed himself, that people are starving because there is no spiritual harvest going on, how would we run to that Epitome, that Joseph figure who is Christ and fall at his feet saying, we need your provision. How we would run to Jesus if we could just see the famine. If we could just see the hurt. If we could just see the spiritual poverty of people. We would run to him every day knowing that Jesus has the key to the storehouse. Knowing that he has the key. He's the only one that can satisfy. The only one that can provide. Paul says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give you life to your mortared bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. You see, my friends, it's not the cross that makes us alive. I want you to catch this tonight. The cross doesn't make you alive. The cross makes you dead. Here's what happens at the cross. At the cross, we see the fullness of our sin. We see the full wrath of God. We see the full holiness of God at the cross. You know what that does? That doesn't pump you up. 
That knocks the flesh down. That knocks the self down and says, look what we did. It brings us to the point of humility. It brings us to the point where our pride, our ego, all that is wiped from under us, where where we see what the flesh has done to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, is it possible that we can look upon the cross and continue in sin? Is it possible that we can look upon the nail-scarred hands of Jesus and say, yeah, Christianity is about me. (laughs) Look at the thorns. It's all about me, God. Why am I not happy, God? Why why am I not happy, God? Because it's not about you. It's about him and his glory. The cross kills the flesh and the self. Just like Isaiah, who had a glimpse of the holiness of God, he says, I am undone. The, The holiest prophet in Israel, I mean, the one who had graduated from Awana, he'd memorized all the scripture, You know, he was a Sunday school teacher. He comes before God, and he sees the holiness of God, and he says, wow, I am wrecked. (laughs) I am undone. That's what the cross does to us. The cross slays the self, showing us the depravity that put Jesus there. But here's the good news. God doesn't leave us in that condition. God didn't leave Isaiah in that sense of woe. No, what he did was he took the coal and he put the the coal on Isaiah's lips and he purged his sin so that Isaiah knew he would be clean before God. Even though the flesh has died with Christ because of the spirit that lives in you, now you can live. Here's Here's what Apostle Paul says. In Jesus Christ you died, but in the resurrection you live. See, we've got to see the death that comes from the cross in order to know that the flesh is crucified. We've got to see that that those nails that held Jesus there was what our flesh did and how far without God we fall. I was talking with Jason Cruz today, and he said that the teenagers over in Moldova, that there's a generational curse on them, much like there is with the children in Haiti. And the kids there, even the adults there, don't have any hope. They don't have any, any identity that's founded upon value. And so the children, really, the reason they're answering all these, you know, do you want to be a supermodel in Florida or all these things, the reason they're doing that is because they have no other hope or value in their life. Today, Pastor Matt and I were riding after a visitation, and he was telling me about a a homeless man he had conversations with, and that the homeless man told him he, he, he didn't think he could get a job. The problem with the homeless is not that they're lazy, but they don't think they have any value. It's a poverty mindset. They don't think they're worth anything. They don't have an identity that is fixed with value. They have no internal voice speaking truth into their soul that they're worth something to God. But that's what we have, who is the Spirit. You see, the cross doesn't just slay you. The Spirit resurrects you. 
The cross doesn't just bring death to the flesh. It brings life to the spirit. And that's why Paul says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that gave him life, even though he suffered for sin, brought him to life. Now that power lives in you. That force that can take dead flesh and cause a heart that hadn't beaten three days to start beating again. That force that can take skin that has been ripped apart and remold it together so that blood can maintain itself in the body is what gives life to you spiritually. That force that all the plasma and blood had dripped from his veins and put that back into him, allowing him to come out of the grave and walk lives inside you. So, can you live victoriously? Well, the question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. The question is not, can I win today? Can I have victory today? The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. And if that's the case, then the answer is you can. Because if you'll stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus and what God did through the cross and what he did through the resurrection, then you'll see that's the power that you got. The problem is we use a mirror instead of a Bible. We use a scale instead of a blessing. Constantly gauging ourselves and saying, man, I'm, I, I failed. I can't do it. Of course you can't. Because all you're doing is looking at you. But if you get your eyes off your own failures and put them on Jesus Christ who already died for it, maybe then you'll start living victorious. I wish somebody helped me today, Dean. You see, it's the spirit who lives in us that does not keep us broken with Christ at the cross or dead in the tomb. But the spirit enables to see us that we've been washed, we've been made clean, we've been made righteous, we've been made right with God. You're not just a dead person in the grave no more. You're a live person. But the problem is we've got a generation of, of sleeping Christians who are content knowing that the cross has, has, you know, well, the cross took away my sin. But the problem is they're still dead in the grave. They're still slumbering waiting for Easter because they think Good Friday was the one that did it. No, my friend, it's not just that your sin has been reckoned with. It's the fact that now God called you into his work. So let me tell you, Easter's come. Step on out. We got a lot of people in the media coming out of the closet. I wish the Christians would. Amen? We don't need to be closet Christians or tomb Christians or Good Friday Christians. We need some Easter Christians who are stepping out into the spirit life. The powerful, filling life that spreads to all corridors and actions Instead of slumbering in Christ's tombs, wrapped up in the garments of sanctification. You know, that, that's comfortable, man. That's comfortable Christianity that says, well, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want now. That's not true. Because if you still love your sin, you have not seen Jesus. That's not repentance. Repentance means now Jesus becomes so beautiful. That old stuff isn't beautiful anymore. Repentance is not just hating sin, it's loving Jesus. 
And let me tell you, if you'll love Jesus, the, the, the hatred for sin will naturally come. The last verse he says, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, to live according to it. I love when he says, therefore. I've gotten to know Apostle Paul pretty good over the past two years, three years. Anytime Apostle Paul says, therefore, he's just provided an argument. He's just provided his, his resounding conclusion to what he previously said. So everything he previously said is leaving up to this. Therefore, you've got work to do. Because you are no longer yours. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to Jesus. You've been bought by him. Therefore, you have an obligation, but not to the flesh. See, formerly, you had to do what the flesh told you to do because you were in that realm, right? If I come to Matt's house and he tells me don't sit on the coffee table, then, then I'm under his dominion. If I come to your house and you, you tell me to use the, the paper plates instead of your, your nice plates, I'm under your dominion. You were in the realm of the flesh, but now you're in another dominion, the realm of the spirit. That means you have an obligation to the spirit. You're in the spirit's house now, not your own house. Therefore, we have a mission. Therefore, we have a duty. Therefore, we have a life and a job. We have a responsibility to walk in the newness of life. It's not some, some you know, I hate to use that word, but easy, easy believism where, where, okay, you know, I'm a Christian. I got baptized. Now I'm cool. Peace out, preacher. You know? And I hate to say it. But that's become commonplace. And that's not transformation. That's not regeneration by the Spirit. That is, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to say yes to these things. And it's not, it's not Christianity or the gospel. You see, if you've never walked in the fullness of the Spirit, you will not see how the sinful life is no longer attractive. Sinful life is not just a, not attractive because it leads to harm, but it's not attractive because it's not beautiful. You see what I'm saying? Many people come to Christ because they're like, I've failed. Well, yeah, you've always been a failure. But why are you coming to Jesus? It's because he's beautiful. That's the difference. That's the difference. It's his beauty and worth that brings us to repentance. It's not the knowledge of our sin. It's the knowledge of his grace that brings us to repentance. You can see your sin, but then see what he did for it. That's the beautiful part. We're no longer in the realm of the flesh because we have died jointly with Christ in him and with him. That's what I'm telling you, friends. If you want to look at the cross, Madonna said she used to wear a cross because she thought it was sexy. There's nothing sexy about Calvary. And the jewelry stores have paraded it as an object of decor instead of an object of sacrifice. 
Because have you ever seen someone wear an electric chair on their necklace? Have you ever seen someone have a guillotine on their bracelet? These are things that kill people. (laughs) It's not pretty. It's not happy. It's death. It is suffering. He has suffered for our sins. He has paid the price of wrath. And therefore, it is impossible for us to look at the cross and and see or say, hey, hey, let me do what I want, God. It's impossible to look at the object of, of our sin and say, let me keep doing it. It can't happen. If that's true, then we don't have the knowledge of the gospel because we haven't seen our sin or his love. Today, I've already mentioned I was talking with Jason Cruz, but he told me something else. He said that that once you see the suffering of the kids in Moldova, that it wrecks you. I agree, people who have been to Haiti and they see the poverty in Haiti, and they see kids who, who don't have water, I agree, it wrecks you. You can't come home and live the same. You don't leave your lights on like you used to. You don't buy the things that you did. You, you, you conserve water. You, you live differently. If we look upon the suffering and we're inherently changed, how much more when we look upon the suffering of a Savior should we be changed? If you can see a, 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 a mortal child suffer and change, How much more to see an immortal God suffer and not be changed? That's what should wreck us. Amen? And I understand exactly what he means. I understand that. But that's why the cross is preached. That's why the gospel is preached. Because let me tell you, my friends, if it takes one time or a thousand times, once you see it, it wrecks you. You can't live the old life. You can't, you can't do the things you once did because you're going to say, oh, wow. You can't go back. If we're not changed, we haven't seen it. If we're still living in the flesh, we've not been raised to new life. We're still walking in that old dominion, still walking to the comfortable bedroom that brings us satisfaction. But... If like Joseph's brothers, we know he's the only one with the bread, then we're going to run to him. We're going to seek him passionately and endlessly until he becomes the obsession. (laughs) And even in the chasing after him, we're rewarded. And even when it feels like, man, this chase that I'm going on, has led to more burdens instead of blessings. It's still beautiful because even in the chase, it's better than the junk we came out of. When we cling to him with everything, that spirit life begins to glow. glow. Well, it glows too. It shines. The gospel light. Amen? Amen. 